0: Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 132, Food for Thought. In this episode, we're going to talk about food, specifically the first cookbook composed in the English language. This collection of recipes was composed by the personal chefs of Richard II, the king of England in the late 1300s who enjoyed a rich and opulent court. This cookbook is fascinating on many levels, not only for the language used to document the recipes, but also for the insight it provides about the nature of food in the late Middle Ages. So, in this episode, we'll explore how people ate in medieval England, and we'll see how the language of food shaped the English language. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com. And you can sign up to support the podcast and get bonus episodes and transcripts at patreon.com slash history of English. Now this time, we're going to look at the language of food and the first collection of recipes composed in the English language. For food historians, this is an important development because it really provides the first detailed account of what people actually ate in medieval England, at least what people in the royal court ate. Prior to this point, historians have to piece together that information from scattered resources. The church imposed dietary restrictions regulating what people could eat on specific days of the year, and the government occasionally passed laws called sumptuary laws that restricted what people could eat. Those types of regulations shed some light on the diets of the period, and a certain amount of information can also be gleaned from archaeological finds and pictures and illustrations of people eating, and occasional references to food in various accountings and government records. But one of the best ways to discern the nature of medieval food is to examine the surviving literature from the period. Poems and stories occasionally mentioned what people were eating, and sometimes they provided elaborate details. In Piers Plowman, the poet William Langland, described the plowman's food as green cheeses, curds and cream, oat cake, beans, and loaves of bread. He also said that Pierce had parsley and leeks and cabbage. But the plowman didn't have enough money for a hen or eggs or salted meat. In the Canterbury Tales, Geoffrey Chaucer wrote about a poor widow in the Nun's Priest's Tale. He said that she ate milk, brown bread, bacon, and the occasional egg. The heroine of the clerk's tale survived on porridge made from various greens she gathered by the roadside. These types of passages give us a glimpse into the diet of an English peasant in the 1300s. But we tend to get even more detailed accounts about the food eaten by nobles. Writers often described elaborate banquets and feasts, and there's no better example of that than the poem we looked at in the last episode, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. As we saw in that poem, the hero Gawain found himself at a large feast on several occasions. The story opens with a Christmas and New Year's feast in King Arthur's court. Later, when he goes in search of the green knight, he ends up at a castle where he's wined and dined. He arrives at the castle on Christmas Eve, which any reader of the period would have understood was the last day of Advent, the period of fasting leading up to Christmas Day. In the Middle Ages, the church didn't allow its followers to eat meat or eggs during that period, but they could eat fish, so the poet describes the meal at the castle as an elaborate fish dinner. The poet says that the tables were covered with white tablecloths, with napkins and salt containers and silver spoons placed on top. He then writes that servers served the meal with seros, seros, and seta seasoned of the baste. With various stews and satisfying dishes, seasoned of the best. Doble felder, as it fallis, and fele king fishes. Double portions were served, and many kinds of fish. He then writes that suma BAKEN in bread. Some were baked in bread. Suma broad on the glades. Some grilled on embers. Suma sultan. Some were boiled. SUMA in sewa savored with spices, some in stews flavored with spices, and I saw a so that they seche leaked, and all the savory sauces that the knight liked. The frege called it a feast full freely and oft, the knight called it a feast freely and often. So, as the poet describes it, the advent fast had been turned into a feast now that passage is interesting in the way it describes the elaborate meal that was served but it's also interesting in the specific choice of words in one line the poet says that dishes were seasoned of the best seasoned of the best but it meant well seasoned to bring out the most flavor This passage is actually the first recorded use of the word season in the sense of adding flavor to food. Now, the word season wasn't a brand new word. It was a French loan word, and it had been around for about a century. But previously, it had only referred to the four periods of the year, winter, spring, summer, and fall, or autumn. Those were the four seasons. And the French word season actually comes from the same Indo-European root as the native English word sow, S-O-W, as in sowing and planting crops. So the word had to do with the growing periods. Well, a crop that was seasoned was a crop that had been in the field for an entire season, or for several seasons. So it was an older crop, one that had been around for a while. And we still have some of that sense of the word season when we refer to a seasoned professional or a seasoned politician, meaning someone who's been around for a long time and has a lot of experience. Well, a seasoned crop was one that had been around for a while and was fully ripened. And for many foods, like fruits, it meant that they had reached the peak of flavor. So the word season came to mean a food that had a lot of flavor. And from there, it came to refer to the process of enhancing the flavor of a meal with herbs and spices. And that gave us the culinary sense of seasoning, which we see used for the first time in that passage from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. From then on, meals that were packed with flavor were said to be seasoned. And speaking of flavor, the Gawain poet also gave us the first recorded use of the word flavor. I noted last time that the manuscript that contains the Gawain poem also contains three other poems, and all four poems in the book are thought to be the work of the same author. One of those other poems is called Pearl, and it contains the first known use of the French word flavor in an English document. So you seasoned a dish in order to maximize its flavor. And of course you did that in the process of cooking. Now, cooking was certainly not a new word in the 1300s, but it is actually a loan word. Cook is one of those very old Latin words that was borrowed by the Anglo-Saxons during the period of Old English. But the Anglo-Saxons only used it as a noun to refer to a person who cooks. But around the current point in our overall story of English in the late 1300s, the word also started to appear as a verb, to cook. The original Latin root was coquere, and via modern French, it's given us other words like cuisine and culinary. And in the late 1300s, it gave us another word meaning cookery. That word was curry. Now, this isn't the word curry in the sense that it's used in Indian food. That's a different word borrowed from the Tamil language of southern India. I'm talking about a different word that was used in Middle English, but has since disappeared from common use. This earlier word curry, sometimes rendered as cairi, was borrowed from French, and as I noted, it meant cookery. It appeared around the year 1390 at the current point in our overall story of English, and it appeared in what is considered to be the oldest cookbook composed in the English language. This collection of recipes was compiled by a group of cooks working in the household of the king, Richard II. The original manuscript has been lost, but it was copied over the centuries in various fragments. Some fragments contain recipes that were not included in the other fragments. In the 1700s, a collection of the recipes was assembled and published under the title The Form of Curry, which literally meant The Form of Cookery, or the proper manner of cooking. That first publication contained well over 200 recipes, all preserved in the original Middle English. They are the oldest known recipes to be written down and preserved in the English language. Other versions of the book were subsequently printed, which included additional recipes from the other surviving fragments that weren't included in the first publication. So there are actually different versions of the book today, But all of the recipes were apparently compiled and preserved during the reign of Richard II, and they describe dishes that were apparently prepared for the king and his guests on a regular basis. They also point to the importance of cookery in the royal court at the time. Now, before we go any further, I should probably refresh your memory a bit about this particular king, Richard II. You might remember from prior episodes that he had become king as a boy because his father, the Black Prince, had died at an early age, so Richard inherited the throne when he was still a young teenager. He initially faced the uprising known as the Peasants' Revolt, but he handled that crisis effectively and put down the revolt. He then had to deal with rebellious nobles who didn't like his opulent spending and his high taxes and they didn't like the fact that he launched a failed invasion of Scotland and couldn't manage to defeat the French across the Channel in the ongoing conflict that became known as the Hundred Years' War. In the late 1380s, he had to deal with two parliaments, which restricted his powers. This was the period when Geoffrey Chaucer served in Parliament, presumably in an attempt to pack the assembly with Richard's supporters, since Chaucer was close to Richard and the royal court. But you might remember that it didn't work. Chaucer ended up losing his government job, and he headed down to Kent to begin work on the Canterbury Tales. Meanwhile, several of Richard's close advisors were accused of treason and were killed. But after that, everything settled down a bit. In 1389, at the age of 22, Richard declared himself to be old enough to rule in his own right, without the supervision of others. And for a while, it looked like he would have a successful reign. He agreed to a temporary truce with France, which meant that he no longer needed to spend a lot of money on the war effort across the Channel. As a result, England's finances improved and the economy prospered. But despite that, Richard is not regarded by historians as a particularly good king. Richard was not a warrior like his father and grandfather, but he loved the trappings of kingship. He maintained an opulent court. He entertained a lot of guests. And he spared no expense in doing so. A chronicler named John Harding was a young man during Richard's reign, and in the next century he composed a history of England. He wrote that Richard's court often entertained and fed ten thousand people, and it had the staff to do that. He wrote that the court had in the kitchen three hundred servitors, so he maintained three hundred kitchen servants to feed the people at court. These same numbers were repeated in the late 1500s by the writer John Stowe in his History of London called A Survey of London. Now, modern historians doubt that the court actually fed 10,000 people on a regular basis, if ever. But there's no doubt that it was an opulent court that entertained a lot of people, and it functioned with a large kitchen staff that produced a lot of high-quality food with some of the most exclusive ingredients that were available at the time. And that was the context for this collection of English recipes that were assembled during his reign. The collection includes recipes from relatively simple soups and snacks to very elaborate main courses. The text begins with the following introduction or preamble, first in modern English. The form of curry was compiled by the master chefs and cooks of King Richard the Second of England after the conquest, who was accounted and considered to be the best and noblest diner of all Christian kings, and it was compiled with the assent and advisement of the masters of medicine and philosophy that dwelt in his court. Now in the original Middle English Forum of curry was compiled of the chef-meister caucus of king richard the second king of england after the conquest they which was accounted the best and realist viand of all christian kinges, and it was compiled be assent and advisement of meisters of physic and of philosophy that dwelled in his court now there are a couple of interesting things about that passage first you'll notice how close the language is to modern english Most of the Middle English manuscripts we've explored recently have been poetry, where the language is a little looser, but here we have a prose text written in plain English, and we can see that the language seems somewhat modern. The other thing that stands out is the reference to masters of medicine and philosophy. The preamble states that the cooks prepared the recipes with the advice and consent of the doctors and physicians who advised the court. So, why did they consult with the doctors, and why did they feel the need to mention that in the preamble? Well, it was because there wasn't much of a difference between food and medicine in the Middle Ages. Food was medicine, and medicine was food. To a certain extent, we still have some of that sentiment today. We've all been told that we are what we eat, and most of us have comfort foods that make us feel better when we're sick but the link between food and medicine was more fundamental in medieval England. In an earlier episode, I talked about the old idea that the human body was made up of substances called humors and that sickness was caused when the humors were out of balance. Well, the humors could be brought back into balance by eating certain foods. So the foods essentially served as medicine, but in the same way that certain foods could cure sickness, They could also cause sickness. It was thought that every single item of food had a fundamental nature as either hot or cold or moist or dry. And when different foods were combined in a recipe, they had to be balanced so the dish wouldn't disturb the humors and make people sick. So an ingredient that was deemed to be hot and moist had to be balanced with an ingredient that was deemed to be cold and dry. And those terms didn't literally mean hot or moist or cold or dry. It had to do with how the ingredients were classified by medieval doctors. And that's why the physicians had to be consulted when formulating these recipes. We can still see vestiges of this old idea if we look around us and if we know what we're looking at. Today, if you go to a pharmacy or a drugstore or chemist chemist's shop, you'll probably encounter the symbol Rx which is a standard symbol for a medical prescription. But what you might not realize is that Rx is really an abbreviation, and it's an abbreviation of the word recipe. Recipe is a Latin loan word, and it shares the same root as words like receipt and receive. So a recipe was something you received. When you were sick, you received instructions from a doctor that told you how to get better. In fact, medieval doctors often wrote down their instructions much like modern doctors do, and they almost always began their instructions with the word recipe, which meant receive or take this. The word recipe was often abbreviated with the letters RC, but instead of writing the C as a separate letter, it became common to just write the C as a little stroke across the leg of the letter R, which made it look like an X and that produced the symbol R-X. But originally, it just meant recipe, the instructions to receive or take a prescribed food or herb. So, it was originally a verb, and that's how the word first appeared in English in the early 1300s. Interestingly, the word didn't acquire its modern meaning as the instructions for making a meal until the 1600s, but the original sense of the word still survives in that symbol R-X. That also explains why the English cooks who compiled the form of curry didn't call the instructions recipes. The word recipe didn't have that meaning at the time. They just referred to the form of making certain dishes. Now, the form of curry was part of a trend that was sweeping Western Europe in the late Middle Ages. Around that time, cooks were starting to write down and preserve their recipes, for the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire, almost a thousand years earlier. The oldest German cookbook was compiled around the year 1350, and the oldest cookbook from France was composed around the year 1375. Fifteen years later, the English cooks compiled The Form of Curry. I should also note that there is a collection of recipes from England that actually predates all of those cookbooks I just mentioned. It was compiled around the year 1300, almost a century before the form of curry. That makes it one of the oldest surviving cookbooks of the Middle Ages. But it wasn't composed in English. It was actually written in French, specifically the Anglo-Norman dialect of French. But I mentioned that earlier text because it allows scholars to compare the recipes that were used at the beginning of the 1300s with those in the form of curry at the end of the 1300s. And for the most part, the recipes are very similar in both collections. Now, it isn't entirely clear why recipe collections started to pop up around this time throughout Western Europe. But it probably had to do with a general change in eating habits especially among the upper classes and royal courts where these collections were preserved. As we saw in earlier episodes, a lot of new foods and spices had started to flow into northern Europe from the Mediterranean during the Crusades. They were brought in via the extensive trading networks that reached from England all the way to the Far East. Those were the same trading networks that had brought the Black Death a few years earlier, but they also brought other things, like fruits and vegetables, and herbs and spices. And the nobles who could afford those new foods, especially those new herbs and spices, experienced a culinary revolution. Those new foods were also combined with new cooking techniques from other cultures. That was especially true in England, where French influences had contributed to English cooking, at least among the nobles. And that's really the key here. These cookbooks and recipe collections were assembled by the cooks working in those upper-class kitchens, and they reflect the cuisine that was being served there. Meanwhile, the food eaten by the peasants probably didn't change very much at all after the Norman Conquest. Those passages from Piers Plowman and the Canterbury Tales, which I mentioned earlier, suggest that the peasant diet was still very basic. And that points to one of the most important distinctions when we're talking about English food in the Middle Ages, the distinction between upper-class food and lower-class food, which often meant the difference between French-influenced cuisine for the nobles and native English cooking for the peasants. This led to what many people consider to be the classic example of Norman French influence on the English language. And that's the difference between the name of an animal in the field and the name of the animal's flesh when it was served at the table. So, as we've seen before, cow is an Old English word, and that's what the Anglo-Saxons called the animal when it roamed the fields tended by English-speaking peasants. But when that cow was butchered and served at the nobles' dinner table, it was called beef, using the French term for a cow. Similarly, the peasants tended to pigs and called them pigs and swine using those Old English words, But when they were served at the nobles' table, those pigs were called pork, using the French word for a pig. Along the same lines, the Old English deer became French venison when it was served, and the Old English calf became French veal at the dinner table, and the Old English sheep became French mutton when it was cooked and served. By the time the form of curry was composed, all of those French words were being used in English. Venison. Pork, beef, and mutton all appeared around the year 1300. And the Canterbury Tales gives us the first recorded use of the word veal. But the living animals were still known by the Old English names. Deer, pig, swine, ox, cow, calf, sheep, and lamb. Now, traditionally, these distinctions have been attributed to the fact that the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans encountered these animals in different places. The Anglo-Saxon peasants encountered them as living animals in the pastures and fields, while the Norman nobles encountered them as meat at the dinner table. So the Anglo-Saxon word was used for the animal, and the French term was used for the meal. And that basic reality was certainly a factor in creating these distinctions. But it was likely only part of the story. First of all, the meat wasn't always given a French name. People still used the Old English word lamb for the cooked meat of a young sheep, as in rack of lamb. And people still used the Old English word ham for the back part of a pig. The same is true for chicken, goose, duck, and most kinds of fish. In those cases, the Old English word was retained for both the animal and the meat. Sometimes it worked the other way. A French word was adopted for the living animal. For example cow is Old English but cattle is French and even though we think of words like beef and mutton as food terms I noted that they were originally the French words for the living animals and it wasn't unusual for English speakers to actually use those same French terms for the living animals well into the modern English period it's common to find English manuscripts from the 1800s that still refer to a living cow as a beef and a living sheep as a mutton. So, as we can see, the real history behind these terms isn't as clean and precise as it sometimes seems. Nevertheless, there really was a social difference in the way people ate, and that social difference probably contributed to the way these words evolved over time. There was also a more general factor at work— And that was the fact that cooking was one of those areas of English life where people borrowed heavily from French. I noted in an earlier episode that the borrowing of words from French became more specialized over time. As the centuries progressed, the loan words tended to come from specific activities or functions, like government, law, fashion, and art. Those were areas where there was still a great deal of French influence at least French linguistic influence. Another one of those areas was cooking and the culinary arts. French influence was especially strong in the kitchen, both in the way foods were cooked and the terms that were used. By the early 1300s, English had already borrowed French terms like bacon, biscuit, grape, mustard, lettuce, vinegar, cream, fry, boil, roast, taste, appetite, dinner, and supper. That process continued on throughout the 1300s and 1400s as English added more and more French terms for food and cooking. And that process has never really stopped. Just within the past couple of centuries, English has added terms like soufflé, éclair, croissant, flambé, bouillabaisse, mousse, ratatouille, fondue, fondant, foie gras, filet mignon, gourmet, and even the very common word chef. In fact, one of the most recent updates to the Oxford English Dictionary added the word chef de cuisine. So the process continues to this day, and as a result, cooking terms in English are dominated by French loanwords. Native English terms tend to be limited to the basic foods and cooking techniques used by the Anglo-Saxons. But most of the developments in English cuisine over the past thousand years are represented by terms borrowed from other languages, most of them from French. So we have this interesting distinction in English where native words are used for certain animals, but loan words are used for the meat. As we saw, that's especially true for certain animals like cows, sheep, and deer. And interestingly... Peasants didn't tend to eat those animals. Most of the meat from those animals was consumed by the upper classes. So maybe that had something to do with the distinction that arose over time. The reason why peasants didn't tend to eat cows and sheep is because those animals helped to sustain life. A cow could provide a peasant family with milk, butter, and cheese. And a sheep provided wool so it was usually better to keep those animals alive. If those animals were slaughtered, the meat was so expensive that it was usually better to sell it in the local market and use the money to buy other basic foodstuffs. And as far as deer were concerned, those generally belonged to the local lord who also owned the forest land. Peasants weren't allowed to hunt in the forest and take the lord's deer. So most of the meat from cows, sheep, and deer ended up on the tables of the nobles and the upper class. And there, that meat was called beef, veal, mutton, and venison. But peasants did have access to other animals, like chicken and fish. And they ate those animals on a regular basis, especially fish. And that may help to explain why the native words were retained for the cooked versions of those animals. A cooked chicken is still called a chicken, and a cooked fish is still called a fish. So today we have Kentucky Fried Chicken, not Kentucky Fried Poulet. And McDonald's sells a filet fish sandwich, not a Filet-O-Poisson sandwich. Now one animal that doesn't fit neatly into these general rules is the pig. Most of our words associated with pigs come from Old English, like boar, sow, and swine. Swine was actually the main word for the animal in Old English. The words pig and hog are also found in Old English, but they weren't very common at the time. They didn't really become common until the Middle English period, but they do appear to be native words. So most of our words for pigs come from Old English. And the peasants of England raised and ate pigs. In fact, pigs were such a staple of the peasant diet that the upper classes of England associated pigs with peasants. The Norman lords sometimes referred to the peasants as hogs and pigs and swine, and some of those words are still used as derisive terms today. Since peasants had access to pigs, that may explain why the Old English word ham has survived as a word for part of the pig. But the more general word for pig flesh is a French word, pork, as in pork chops and pulled pork and pork loin, loin being another French loan word from the 1300s. So here we have a case where the peasants routinely ate the animal, but a French word was adopted for the cooked meat. Another term for pig flesh is bacon, and that's another French loan word from the same time period. The word came from French, but it actually has Germanic roots. Bacon is related to the English word back, because bacon came from the pig's back. Now, when a pig was slaughtered, it wasn't consumed all at one time. It was eaten over several weeks or months, and that meant that the meat had to be preserved so it didn't go bad. Keep in mind that there was no refrigeration, so you couldn't just put the meat in a freezer. You had to find another way to preserve it, and there were several ways to do that. One technique, especially for fruits, was to dry them. Water contributes to the growth of bacteria, so drying the fruit or other foods removed much of the water and inhibited the growth of bacteria. Another technique for meat was to smoke it. Exposing the meat to smoke for a long period of time pulled moisture from the meat and it provided an acidic coating which helped to block the growth of bacteria. But the most common technique for preserving meat was to salt it, either by literally covering it with salt or by soaking it in a salt water solution called brine. That process also removed water from the meat and preserved it. And that's why salt was such an important commodity over the centuries. You might remember that the word salary is based on the Latin word for salt, which was sol. Soldiers were often paid in salt, since it was such a valuable commodity, and that payment became known as a salary from sol, meaning salt. It's also how we got the phrase worth one's salt, meaning that the person is competent or of high value. By the way, the word salt is actually the native Old English word. As I mentioned, Latin had the word as sal, so obviously they're very similar, and as you might expect, both words came from the same Indo-European root, and that explains the similarity. So, salt was a very important commodity, both as a seasoning and as a preservative. And given the fact that England was located on an island, it meant that the country had direct access to salt from ocean water and other deposits. So there was plenty of salt to go around, and it was therefore easy to preserve meat. And for peasants, that mostly meant salted pork or bacon. Now, while the meat was being preserved, it had to be stored somewhere, usually in a separate building or smokehouse, and that meant that dogs and other animals could break in and take it, and sometimes people would break in and steal it. And that was a big deal for peasants who relied on the salted meat in the winter months, So it was very important to protect or save the bacon from intruders and thieves. And that ultimately produced the phrase save the bacon or save one's bacon to refer to the process of protecting oneself from a loss. The salting of meat to preserve it also explains another common food term, the word sausage. Sausage is another French term borrowed around the current point in our overall story of English. It first appeared in English in the 1400s, and it came from that same Latin root word for salt. So, ultimately, sausage and salt are cognate. So, what's the connection? Well, to make sausage, the meat was ground up with other fillings and salted, and then placed into the casings, which were usually intestines that had been cleaned. The salting of the meat in the casing helped to preserve it, and thus that little tube of meat became known as a sausage. Salt was such an important ingredient in medieval cooking that it also gave us other words, like sauce and saucer. Both of those words were adopted from French, and both appeared in English in the mid-1300s. Sauces were common in the fancier dishes prepared for the upper classes, and salt was a key ingredient in those sauces. That's why the word sauce is derived from that Latin root word for salt. And sauce was often served in a separate bowl, which became known as a saucer. Saucers also held the salt, which was used as a condiment, at the table. So salt, salary, sausage, sauce, and saucer are all cognate. Now I talked about the process of making sausage, and there's a modern proverb or idiom that refers to what happens when we pull the curtains back and see how something is really done behind the scenes. Sometimes it isn't as pleasant as we might have thought, so we say that it's like watching how the sausage gets made. In other words, sausage may taste good, but making it is a messy process, so you might not want to see what goes into it or how it's made. Well, that brings up another issue the various parts of pigs and other animals that were considered to be of lower quality, like the organs or entrails. Those were sometimes thrown away, especially by cooks in the upper-class kitchens. Today, we might say that they were thrown in the garbage. Well, those animal parts actually were garbage in the Middle Ages, because the word garbage literally meant low-quality animal parts, since those parts were often thrown away the word garbage eventually came to mean anything that was thrown away but originally it referred to entrails and organs and animal parts and it was borrowed from french around the current point in our story the word garbage is first recorded in english in the early 1400s but it had probably been around since the 1300s and I say that because the word was used in a London ordinance adopted in the year 1379, during the reign of the current king, Richard II. The ordinance was written in French, and it specifically said that bakers were making pastries with, quote, rabbits, geese, and garbage, not befitting and sometimes stinking in deceit of the people, end quote. It then directed that bakers could not use, quote, any garbage from capons, hens, or geese to bake in a pastry, end quote. So what was that all about? Well, apparently cooks in some of the upper-class kitchens were taking the entrails and organs and other unusable meat and selling it to bakers, who would then turn around and use it as filling for meat pies. But those pies were making people sick. So the ordinance was designed to protect the public health by preventing bakers from using that stuff that was often thrown away. The ordinance also prevented bakers from putting beef into their pies and then passing it off to customers as venison. That was because beef wasn't considered to be of the same quality as venison. So selling a beef pie as venison was a type of fraud. Now the cooks in noble kitchens might throw away this low-quality meat, but peasants weren't so picky. They couldn't afford to throw anything away. To use a modern expression, they ate everything but the squeal. Not only were intestines used to make sausages, they were also fried or boiled to make chitterlings, a word which also appeared around the current point in our story, around the year 1400. It isn't entirely clear where the word came from, but it was later shortened to chitlins, which many people still associate with rural and poor communities. Another word that was similar to chitterlings or chitlins was the word haslet. It referred to the inner organs of a pig, the ones that were edible, and it first appeared in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It appeared in the part where Gawain's host killed a boar during the hunt and slaughtered it. The poem says that he hots out the haslets, took out the haslets. The hastelets were usually grilled on a spit over a fire, and sometimes the word was applied to other foods that were cooked in a similar way. That's how the word was used in that early English cookbook, The Form of Curry. That book describes a dish made from figs, dates, and almonds, which were placed on a spit and roasted. The dish is called hastelets of fruit. Both hastelets and fruit were French loanwords. And notice that this dish prepared for the royal court didn't actually use innards. It used fruit and prepared it in a way that was similar to hastlets, And that's why it was called hastlets of fruit. So this was a play on a type of food that was normally eaten by peasants. Another word for animal organs or entrails was numbles. It was another French loan word from the 1300s. And believe it or not, it's the origin of the term Humble pie. Again, peasants didn't tend to throw anything away, so they took those numbles and baked them in a pie. That type of pie was called a numbles pie. But you might remember that nouns that began with an N sound sometimes lost that sound in Middle English because they often followed the article A, and people thought the N was part of that preceding article. I mentioned in an earlier episode that a type of snake was a nadra, and when people spoke, the sounds slurred together, and it sounded like anadra, or anadra. The N moved over to the article, and over time, the word became anadder. So, nadra lost its N and became adder. And that actually happened to quite a few words, including the word numbles. Over time, a numbles pie became an umbles pie. So that was the first sound change. The N was dropped at the front of the word, from numbles to umbles. But then there was another sound change when an H was added to the front of the word, from umbles to humble. So why did that happen? Well, in early modern English, it was common for speakers in England to drop the initial H in words that began with an H sound. So they said things like allo instead of hello. That was especially common in lower class and working class communities. So people started to think that humble's pie was one of those terms where people were just dropping the H at the front. So they thought that humble's pie was really humble pie. And that confusion was encouraged because it was a type of pie that was usually eaten by poor people. So, humble pie came to mean a type of pie or food eaten by someone who was humble or poor. And today, if someone eats humble pie, they're acting humbly or with humility. But again, it began in the 1300s as numbles, the innards of a pig or other animal. Now, to be fair, I should mention that this royal cookbook, The Form of Curry, also has a recipe for numbles. The recipe says to take the numbles of a deer or other animal and boil them, and take the broth and thicken it with bread. Then add vinegar and wine and cooked onions, and season it with salt and other seasonings, boil it well, and serve it. So this appears to be a slightly elevated version of the dish. There was also a similar dish that was common at the time called hodgepot or hotchpot. The word actually appeared for the first time in Chaucer's writings. Again, it was a French term, and it combined the French word hoche, meaning to shake, and the French word pot, meaning a cooking vessel. A hotchpot was a thick broth made from a mixture of meat, vegetables, and anything else the cook had lying around. The cook just tossed it all in and cooked it. The form of curry has a specific recipe for it called geese in hotchpot. You cut up a goose and boil it in water and wine, add onions and herbs, cook it for a while, and pour it over a layer of bread and add seasonings. Again, that was an elevated version of the dish. For most people, it was more common to just throw in whatever you had available at the time. And that's how the word evolved from hotchpot to hodgepodge, meaning a mixture or confused jumble. This also explains the phrase gone to pot, which appeared in the 1500s. Today it means something that no longer has any value. It's worthless. It's gone to pot. Well, originally it referred to the leftovers that were otherwise useless. The cook chopped them up and tossed them in the pot that was constantly simmering over a fire. If the items went to the pot... It meant that they weren't good for anything else. And over time, it's come to refer to anything that's become useless or worthless. The 1500s also gave us the term potluck, which is based on this same basic idea. Since almost every household maintained a pot on the fire with something cooking in it, the contents of that pot was what was served when visitors came by. The visitors got whatever was cooking in the pot at the time. It might be a good day with a tasty soup full of quality vegetables and maybe even some meat. But usually, it was a bland broth with not very much of substance in it at all. So the visitor had to take whatever was dished out, whether good or bad. So what the visitor got depended on luck or chance. And that led to the sense of potluck as a random dish brought to a dinner party or gathering. Again, you don't really know what people are bringing to a potluck dinner. And eventually, the word potluck came to mean a random result or whatever happens by chance. I should also mention the word potpourri, which is a French term borrowed in the 1600s. Today, it means a medley of flowers or other aromatics. It's pronounced in the French manner, potpourri, even though it looks like potpourri, because it has that word pot in it. Well, potpourri was originally a French term for a type of stew or hotchpot with a mixture of ingredients. And English initially borrowed the word with that same sense as a stew, but over time it's come to mean a medley or mixture of other things. And there was one other important term for a similar type of soup or stew made with random ingredients. That term was pottage again based on the same word pot, because it was cooked in a pot. The word pottage is really the most common term for the soups and stews that people ate in the Middle Ages, and well into the modern era as well. Again, it was made with random vegetables, cereals, and whatever else was lying around. If peasants had a little pork or other meat, they would toss that in as well. During the 1500s, the pronunciation of pottage became slurred a bit, And it evolved into the word porridge which is probably the more familiar term today again porridge was a basic food staple for peasants it could be made with a thin watery broth or it could be thickened with breadcrumbs and cereals even though peasants ate a lot of porridge or pottage the dish could also be found in noble households and even on the dinner table of the king the form of curry has several pottage recipes, like cabbages in pottage, rapes or turnips in pottage, and gourds in pottage. Again, these were elevated versions made with onions, saffron, salt, and other spices. The gourd version also called for pork and egg yolks, so the king's version could be a hearty meal in itself. And since I'm talking about pottages and porridges, I should mention another related dish gruel. That was another French loan word that appeared in English in the mid-1300s. So it was in use by the current point in our story. It was another type of pottage or porridge, but it usually had a base of oatmeal boiled in water or milk. Again, other meats or vegetables could be added in, but it had a reputation as a dish that was filling, but not very appetizing. It was such a basic concoction that it was often given to people who didn't have any other food options. It was the food that was often given as a form of punishment or to those who were being punished. And through that association, the word gruel became an adjective. Today, if we refer to a grueling situation, it means a situation that is exhausting or punishing. Nevertheless, even the king ate gruel from time to time, Assuming he actually ate the dishes described in the form of curry, because it contains a couple of gruel recipes, here's one called Gruel of Almonds. Take almonds blanched, bray him with oatmeal, and draw him up with water, cast thereon saffron and salt. In modern English, it reads: Take blanched almonds, bray or crush them together with oatmeal, and draw them up with water cast thereon saffron and salt." So by now we get a sense of how the common people ate. They consumed lots of stews or soups with mixed grains and vegetables and whatever else was available. If they had some pork, they would toss it in, but they didn't generally eat beef or mutton or venison. As I noted earlier, cows were preserved for milk and dairy, and sheep were preserved for their wool, and deer were hard to come by because they lived in the forests, and most of the wilderness and forest land belonged to the king or the local lord. Peasants weren't usually allowed to hunt on that land. Of course, some of them took the risk anyway, and they poached the deer or rabbits or other wildlife. In fact, that type of poaching had become quite common by the current point in our story in the late 1300s. To deal with this problem, the English Parliament adopted the first set of game laws in England. The laws were adopted by Parliament and approved by the King in the year 1390, the very same year that the form of curry was compiled. Those new game laws prohibited people from owning or possessing hunting dogs unless they owned lands that produced more than 40 shillings of income per year. Now, since most peasants didn't have those types of landholdings, it barred them from owning hunting dogs, which effectively prevented them from poaching the animals in the forests. The word poach, in the sense of stealing wild animals, didn't appear in English until the 1500s. Its origin is unclear, though one theory suggests that it's derived from the French word poke, meaning a bag or a sack, You might remember that I talked about that word in an earlier episode. A pig and a poke literally meant a pig in a sack. And a small poke or bag was sometimes sewn into the lining of clothing, thereby creating the word pocket. The same root also gave us the word pouch. And this theory suggests that people who stole small animals like rabbits put them in sacks and carried them away. Since they used pokes, or pouches, they were called poachers. Again, that's just a theory. But we also have the word poach in the realm of cooking, when we poach an egg. And that sense of the word poach appeared for the first time in English in the form of curry. The recipe collection contains specific instructions on how to poach an egg. So, is there any connection between a cook who poaches an egg and a thief who poaches an animal in the forest? Well, if the word poach in the sense of illegal hunting is actually based on the word poke or pouch, then yes, there is a connection. Because to poach an egg is literally to envelop it in a sack of egg whites. When you place a raw egg in very hot water, it starts to cook, and the egg whites start to congeal. They actually envelop the yolk, which remains at the center of the egg. And you can actually remove the egg from the water intact and place it on a plate. And if the yolk hasn't cooked all the way through, you can cut through the egg whites and the yolk will run out. So, in effect, the egg whites become the pouch or poke that holds the yolk inside. And that's why it's called a poached egg. And again, that term is recorded for the first time in English in the form of curry. Now, so far, I've talked a lot about meat or the lack of meat in the English diet of the 1300s. But it's important to keep in mind that this was a very religious period, and the church restricted the eating of meat on many days of the year. Specifically, the church prohibited the eating of meat or eggs on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. That's three out of seven days of every week. The church also prohibited people from eating during Lent leading up to Easter and Advent leading up to Christmas. When you do the math on all of that, you realize that people were prohibited from eating meat for over half of the days of the year. And those restrictions applied to both the nobles and the peasants, and everyone in between. So that meant that people needed an alternative to meat. And as I noted earlier in the episode, they had one. Under the rules of the church, fish was not restricted because it wasn't considered meat. So the restricted days when meat and eggs were prohibited were called fish days. In fact, several recipes in the form of curry appear in two versions, one using meat and the other using fish. For example, the collection includes a recipe for a dish called chouettes, which was a baked dish seasoned with salt and ginger. One version, called chouettes on flesh day, was made with pork and egg yolks. The other version was called Chuets on Fish Day, and it was made with four different kinds of fish, turbot, haddock, cod, and hake. Now, the people of England had easy access to fish. Britain is an island, after all. But there was one fish that tended to dominate, and that was the herring. I mentioned way back in episode 108 that England was a major exporter of herring. They were abundant off the east coast of the country, and they were shipped all over Europe. They were also eaten throughout England, especially on fish days. They were a cheap source of protein, and they were a staple of the peasant diet. But since they were caught by the thousands, they had to be preserved as soon as they were caught, or they would go bad very quickly. They were usually soaked in a salt brine, dried, and smoked. And that process not only preserved the herring, It also changed the color of the fish from a silvery color to a reddish-copper color. And that's how we got the term red herring. Originally, a red herring was literally a red herring. It was a preserved herring, which was commonly found in England in the Middle Ages. Another term for a red herring, or a preserved herring, was a kipper. Both herring and kipper are Old English words. The etymology of kipper beyond that is not known for certain, but one theory is that kipper is related to the word copper because of the copper color of the kipper or preserved fish. At any rate, the kipper or red herring had a distinct aroma and it could attract animals. It could also be used to train hunting dogs. By dragging a herring along a path, the dog could be trained to follow the scent but it could also provide a distraction and lead the dog in the wrong direction. And that was apparently the origin of the modern term red herring to mean a distraction or deception. If we refer to something as a red herring today, we usually mean that it's a misleading clue or something that diverts attention from the real problem. And that figurative sense of the term appeared in the 1800s. While herrings were common among the peasants, the upper classes tended to eat other fish. As I noted earlier, the form of curry mentions fish like turbot, haddock, cod, and hake. It also mentions pike and several fish with French names like mackerel, place, loach, and salmon. Salmon replaced the native English word for the fish, which was lax. It came from the same Germanic root as the Yiddish word lox, as in bagels and lox. One particular recipe in the form of curry, called mortress of fish, was a type of soup or porridge made with a mixture of cod, haddock, and hake. The recipe begins by directing the cook to "say it well in water, seethe or boil it well in water, and peek out the bones, pick out the bones. And that raises another issue. If you eat a lot of fish, it means that you're constantly picking out the bones. And that led to a couple of other common expressions in English. If you have a bone to pick with someone, it means that you have a problem or issue with that person. It comes from the fact that picking bones out of a fish is a problem that has to be resolved before you can eat it. Sometimes you might have the good fortune of eating or cooking a fish with very few bones. In that case, you might say that you found no bones in it. That phrase appeared in the mid-1400s. And over time, it came to refer to an easy situation. So today, if I say that someone made no bones about it, it means that they didn't raise an objection or create a problem. Now, the recipe I just mentioned, Mortress of fish, said to pick out the bones and then grind small of the fish, grind small the fish, before adding the fish to the broth and simmering it with various seasonings. Here the recipe uses the word grind, but in other recipes it uses the word mince. And the form of curry is one of the first English documents to use the French word mince. Mince meant to chop finely or make small, and it comes from the same root as minute and minimum. A lot of the recipes in the form of curry involve chopping or mincing or grinding various ingredients, and adding them to a broth or using them to create a sauce. As I noted earlier, the word sauce is related to the word salt because it was originally a broth that was well salted and had a salty flavor. The form of curry used the word sauce, and it also introduced another very similar word, the word gravy. The cookbook contains the first recorded use of the word gravy in the English language. The word gravy was borrowed from French and is apparently derived from the word grain. In the same way that salt was a key ingredient in early sauces, grains of spices were a key ingredient in early gravies, and that's apparently the connection between grain and gravy. In the form of curry, the gravies were usually made with almond milk and seasoned with sugar and ginger, so it was sort of a sweet milk sauce. It wasn't until the 1500s that the meaning of gravy shifted to its modern sense as a sauce formed from the juices of the meat being cooked. Now, I said that the word gravy was apparently derived from the word grain because the link is somewhat obscured by a common scrivener's error. French had the word as grane, which was similar to the word grain. Grane meant a sauce or stew. So, it had an N sound instead of a V sound. But in the form of curry and later manuscripts, it appeared as gravy with a V instead of grane with an N. Now, this appears to be a misspelling by the cooks who wrote down the recipes in the original manuscripts. And then later cooks adopted this same spelling and the pronunciation that went with it. But why would they have confused an N with a V? Well, I've actually addressed this issue before in an earlier episode of the podcast. Those letters were often confused in medieval manuscripts. Remember that the printing press didn't exist yet, so manuscripts were handwritten in a flowing cursive style where one letter flowed into the next letter. And letters that had a series of vertical strokes were easily confused with each other. The letters I, L, M, N. U and V all tended to resemble each other because they were made up of vertical strokes linked at the bottom. So a word like minimum was just a series of up and down strokes when it was written in this style. That's part of the reason why words like honey and monk got their modern O's. They were originally spelled with U's. But the U before the N in those words created so much confusion that scribes decided to drop the U and replace it with an O. And keep in mind that the letters U and V were not distinct yet. The letter was always written as a curvy U, even though it represented different sounds. So again, it was easy to confuse an N with a U or a V in this writing style. And that may explain why English cooks misread grane as grave, which became gravy. And if that is in fact what happened, then we can see the connection between grain and gravy. So again, gravy is apparently derived from grains of spices in the same way that sauce is derived from the Latin version of salt. And earlier we saw that the Latin version of salt also gave us the words sausage and saucer. Well, there's another common food term from the same Latin word for salt, and that's the word salad. A salad was a dish of mixed vegetables and herbs that was served raw, but to give it some flavor, it was seasoned with salt, so it became known as herba salata in Latin, which literally meant vegetables salted. And over time, that Latin name, herba salata, was shortened to just salat, or salad in English so salad actually comes from the Latin word for salt and is cognate with salt sausage and sauce now in the thirteen hundreds salads were eaten around the Mediterranean where they were often flavored with a sauce or dressing made from olive oil and vinegar but salads weren't really common in northern Europe at the time Peasants might eat raw vegetables, but it wasn't prepared like a salad with olive oil and vinegar. In fact, olive oil had to be imported from the Mediterranean, so it was really expensive. And yet, this early English cookbook, The Form of Curry, has a recipe for salad, and it's made with oil and vinegar, just like in Italy. And in fact, that recipe is the first recorded use of the word salad in the English language. This recipe points to something very interesting about the form of curry. While it's dominated by recipes that were probably common in England and France, there are also a handful of recipes that appear to be derived from the Mediterranean, and several specifically from Italy. And at first glance, those recipes seem a little out of place for the British Isles in the 1300s. In addition to a Mediterranean-inspired salad with oil and vinegar, The book also contains a recipe for lozains, which is actually lasagna. It directs the cook to make a paste from flour and then roll it into thin sheets of pasta like paper. The pasta was to be cooked in water and then arranged in layers with cheese and spices in between. Now, Europeans hadn't discovered the New World yet, so there were no tomatoes and therefore no tomato sauce, but this recipe does describe an early form of lasagna. In the same collection, there's also a recipe for an early version of macaroni and cheese. It directs the cook to take a thin piece of dough, cut it into pieces, boil the pieces in water, and then finish by adding grated cheese and butter. The dish is called either macros or macarons in the various surviving copies of the cookbook. And that recipe name is the first recorded use of the words macaroon, macaron, and macaroni in the English language. Now, you're probably saying, wait, those are different things. Well, they are today. Today, a macaroon or macaron is a little sweet cookie or biscuit. And macaroni is a type of pasta. But originally, the Italian word macaroni simply meant a paste made with flour and egg whites. The paste could be made with or without sugar. The sweetened dough eventually produced a sweet cookie or biscuit, and the unsweetened dough eventually produced a type of pasta, which was later made into small tube shapes. Now, that's a vastly oversimplified version of a complicated and obscure history, but it's generally agreed that the sweet treat and the pasta dish stem from the same origin. So if that's how the foods became distinct, what about the names? Well, macaroon and macaroni are ultimately derived from the singular and plural versions of the same word. So you have one macaroon when you have a cookie or biscuit, but you have lots of macaroni in a dish of pasta. And again, we get the first taste of macaroni in the form of curry. So this ancient cookbook includes recipes for macaroni and lasagna. But that's not it. Some of the surviving versions of the manuscript also contain a recipe for ravioli. Again, it's an Italian pasta dish that pops up in an English cookbook in the late 1300s. And here's something else that's interesting. I noted earlier in the episode that there was an even earlier cookbook composed in England about a century earlier in the late 1200s but it was composed in Norman French, so it doesn't have much to do with the history of English. But that earlier Norman French cookbook also has essentially the same recipe for ravioli. And the reason why that's so interesting is because that earlier recipe is the first recorded reference to ravioli anywhere in the world, even in Italy. Now, pasta was just starting to become firmly established in Italy around that time, in the late 1200s. I should note that there are references to pasta dishes all the way back in the Roman period, but the art of pasta making largely disappeared in Italy for several centuries after the Roman Empire fell. However, it started to make a comeback in the 1100s, perhaps due to Arab influence since pasta was still being eaten in the Arab world. But at any rate, we don't get regular references to pasta and pasta dishes in Italy until the 1300s. So, to find a recipe for ravioli in England in the late 1200s is very interesting. Maybe it came back to England with the Crusaders, and maybe it had to do with the fact that a separate group of Normans conquered and ruled Sicily in the 12th century. Maybe it came to England with a chef who had spent some time in Italy and was familiar with the dish. It's impossible to say in retrospect, but we can assume from the presence of these recipes that the English nobles were some of the first people in northern Europe to enjoy some of the most popular pasta dishes from Italy. So, I'm going to conclude on that note. Next time, we'll continue to look at medieval cooking, but we'll focus on what happened after the meals were cooked. In other words, we'll look at mealtime, the way people actually ate in the Middle Ages. We'll explore the words we use for mealtimes and eating utensils, and the various social rules that accompanied the meal. And that will complete our look at medieval food and the way it impacted the English language. Until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast.